But Stephen Alagirgis is clever enough that things do multiple things at the same time. Right. Welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone. Here we are. We came back just like we promised we would. We did. We uh, Full disclosure, th- we're actually recording this before we, like, take that break that is the break between <laughs> seasons. So, we, we're, you know, we haven't, we haven't actually taken our break yet, but we're, we're anticipating that break. But you all <laughs> have been on a break, and so it's this weird, uh, it's the world of podcasting and recording ahead, right? That we're, right. we're returning from a break that we haven't taken yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit Time Lord-ish. We're, we're <laughs> Yeah, but we're excited nonetheless to be jumping into this new season with all of you. Um, excited to be talking about theater's best scripts again and getting to have these conversations back and forth. And uh, yeah, just just excited to be back at it again with with all of you out there. That we're 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 starting off the season with a great play. Uh, yeah, we're kind of returning off strong. Starting yeah. off strong. <laughs> we're we're kind of returning to one of our old traditions of starting uh, seasons off with Pulitzer Prize winning plays. So that's kind of a fun nod back to some seasons past. Yeah, so so that you all can have a, like a peek behind the curtain. We you know we we like to use the recent Pulitzer as the start of the season. Of course, there's only one Pulitzer every year, and there's two seasons a year. So we sort of bounce back and forth between whatever the most recent play to win is and another recent play. And you know, at the time of recording this episode, there is a Pulitzer announced that we're not doing. And the reason why we end up doing that is just that the Pulitzers, when they're announced, it takes a long time before the scripts are available to the public because they're trying to sell those scripts to like bigger theater companies to do. So we will be able to come back to the more recent Pulitzer Prize winner probably next season when that script is available for publishing and we can buy it and read it and discuss it. But for these early in the calendar year seasons, this you know winter spring season that we do every year, we go then and look at another of the more recent Pulitzer Prize winners. So that is exactly what we are doing today. We are talking about the winner of the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, which is a play by Stephen Adley-Giergis, a personal favorite of mine. And and uh, favorite playwright, and this play is called Between Riverside and Crazy. Yes, Between Riverside and Crazy. Excited to get to talk about it today. I, th- I first interacted with this play um, in, I think it was my theater history class or something like that, which required the uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning play of the year, and this was the Pulitzer Prize winning play of that year. So there you go. That dates me a little bit. Um, but... <laughs> So, uh, but this is the first time, I I think probably the first time I've interacted with it since then. So I'm excited to get to kind of return to it and and jump on some of the themes of it. Yeah, like I just said, I love Stephen Adligergis. And so when a new SAG play comes out, I am on it. So I I, I was anticipating this play when it won. I was excited for him because he's been a major contributor to the American stage for a long time to get that award at that moment in his career. That was, it was weirdly personal exciting for me because I had been following him and anticipating this level of recognition for him and for what he does. Uh, I have said before on this podcast that I think Stephen Adligirgis is one of the best 
titlers in all of theaterdom. His <laughs> plays are titled so well. Jesus Hopped the A-Train, uh, Our Lady of 121st Street, The Motherfucker with the Hat. I mean, those are excellent titles of plays. And I will admit a little bit of disappointment <laughs> with my friend Mr. Gierges about this title. Yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan of the title Between Riverside and Crazy. Love the play. Love the play. I'm really anticipating our conversation. So this is not a knock on the work at all. Love this play. But right. I don't really like the title that much. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. For longtime listeners of the show, this is a documented fact. I think last time we talked about <laughs> I, the Gierges play. <laughs> you, <laughs> we've, we've, we've mentioned this play's title before, so I'm excited to get to jump into it and kind of give it its due time in the No Script spotlight. However, before we do, we want to kick off the year right and say thank you to everyone of our patrons over at patreon.com slash no script podcast for being patrons of the show this show is completely supported by our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast thank you all so much for being a part of the no script community in this way we love getting to do this show we love getting to be on season eight of doing this show and uh y'all make it possible if you're looking for a way to help out no script patreon.com slash no script podcast is a great way to do it we have a number of different tiers over there the lowest one being just one dollar twelve dollars over the course of a year. Um, so uh, if, you, if you're getting something out of the show, whether you're a, a, a first-time listener right here in this episode, um, which in which case, maybe you haven't Welcome gotten that much out of it yet. Welcome to the show! <laughs> Welcome to the show! <laughs> <laughs> or long-time listeners who've been with us and are looking for a way to help out the co- podcast. Patreon.com slash podcast is a great way to do it. Thank you all so much and we will see you over there. And now... Back to the script. Jumping in. That's Here we the go. first one for season eight. Back Inaugural. to the script. We we have a great season of plays ahead of us. We we always are like this at the beginning of the season because the anticipation of this new group of plays that we're going to get to talk to is just it's it's ready. It's in us. We're we're excited. But this season is going to be awesome. We've got a lot of plays to discuss, and we're starting with this great great play between Riverside and Crazy, which was originally produced in 2014 by the Atlantic Theatre Company, which is an off-Broadway theater in New York City. Second Stage then continued that same production. That's my understanding of the story anyway. They took that production and produced it again off-Broadway in 2015. Uh, And then it went on to kind of what we refer to as the regional professional theater scene across the country. Uh, American Conservatory Theater did it in 2015. Steppenwolf did it in 2016. Um, The Artist Rep Theater in Portland did it in 2018. Speakeasy Stage in Boston did it in 2018. American Stage Company in Florida did it in 2018. The uh, LATW, the Los Angeles Theater Works, that is a company that Jackson and I like to mention when we can because they produce audio recordings of plays. They put on a live production with a full cast in front of an audience and then they record the audio and I mean they're, the actors are like sitting at tables and mics so it's designed to do this but they make a recording then of that live production in front of an audience and turn those into audio plays and there are some really spectacular audio productions at the LATW website which you can purchase for like five bucks. I mean it's, it's really great and they have a production of Between Rivers and Crazy from 2017, which they produced at the theater at UCLA. So you can also see it there. 
up and coming between Riverside and Crazy is about to make its Broadway debut, Second Stage, who if you remember from just a few seconds ago, produced it in 2015, they produced it then off-Broadway, and up and coming in the 2022 season, they are going to produce it on Broadway, along with a play by Lynn Nottage, which is cool. So that is upcoming. 2022 season between Riverside and Crazy will make its Broadway debut. It is a very well-lauded play. Like we said, 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, 2015 New York Drama Critics Circle Award, 2015 Outer Critics Circle Award, uh, the 2015 Off-Broadway Alliance Award, and that 2015 production was nominated for six Lucille Lord Awards, including the Outstanding Play, which it won, Outstanding Lead Actor in a Play, which it won, as well as a couple of other acting awards in set design and direct. In that original production was Stephen McKinley Henderson, who is an actor that, while you may not recognize his name, you will recognize his work from film. This is a guy who was in Dune, who was in Fences, who was in a number of uh, very popular recent films. Look up his like IMDb page and you will recognize the photo, you will recognize his work from film, and he played the lead role in this play, Pop, who Jackson will tell you about, and won that uh, Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Actor in a New Play. Yeah, so so this is like a well-lauded play. Lots of people, like important people, circled around this play in its in its inception and continue to be a part of its story. Um, I'm going to talk tell you just a little bit about the synopsis itself, as we often do, just to kind of get us all off on the same foot. Um, this play takes place in the recent summer um, in Manhattan. So, okay, (laughs) recently, that's what it says, right? Summertime, recently. Uh It's not present, so I I, credit for that. But (laughs) is is it that different from the present? I don't know. I probably, you know, it's 2015. If you say recently, nobody's worried about COVID in the play. It's so it's true. not recent to now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's a couple just, cultural references I in there. I do not. Too, so. I do not understand why you wouldn't. I, I the playwrights putting in recently present. Like I just truly don't get it. Just put it here. <laughs> Or a range of years, right? Like you could say sometime between 2013 and 2016. Great. Great. It's fine. (laughs) Ah. Yeah, yeah. So so sometime in the recent present. uh, (laughs) uh, Kind of. It's kind (laughs) of. Donald Trump's not president in the play, right? So it's like it's at least six years old. Somewhere around there. Yep. Game of Thrones is is a current cultural reference Mm -hmm. for for, Mm it. So, so, yep, Mm -hmm. there's, there's that. Uh, <laughs> the location is New York City, somewhere around Manhattan, in a beautiful apartment. Uh, pretty notably, this apartment has been rent controlled for a very long time. Um, Walter, or uh, Walter Washington, or Pops, as he is referred to throughout the play, or Dad, um, by a number of the characters, has had a, a pretty good deal, pretty good lease on this place for a very long time. Pretty comfortable with it. It's a beautiful apartment, or at least it was. Uh, chandeliers in the place, large ceilings, big old apartment. Um, it has since fallen into disrepair, which is mostly due to the fact that uh, Pops is a widower. Um, He lost his wife some years ago, 
and uh, has has been kind of living without her in the apartment still. Um, his son Junior um, lives with him as well at the moment, as well as his, Junior's girlfriend Lulu, and also the character of Oswaldo, who is Junior's friend. They're all kind of living with Pops at the start of the play. The first scene, we're, we're meeting all of these people and getting to know them quite a bit. We find out um, uh, Pops is a retired cop. Um, he was one, one of the uh, 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 New York Police Department and uh, retired pretty pretty uh, recently, sometime in the last probably eight years. Um, pretty, we're pretty, pretty clear about the timeline of that. He's retired. Um, he's he's been a part of the the this kind of uh, bad blood. We get a little bit of, of knowledge of around a court case, although we we don't really know much about it in this first scene. He's been trying to win this court case. We're not really sure what it's about yet at the top of the play, though. Junior has been recently in prison, um, as well as Oswaldo has been recently in prison, and they're kind of trying to get their feet under them. And Lulu is uh, Junior's. Uh, uh, girlfriend and she's in college at the at, at the time or at least a student at, at the moment she she claims um, uh, learning to be an accountant and uh, we kind of get to know all these people as Waldo is pretty close to uh, pops and and he's he's he calls him dad and they have this kind of morning conversation we learn that pops doesn't really go out anymore um, he he uh, sends people out for things he he mentions that a church lady comes and visits him every week or so and that he has to have cookies and juice for her when she's there so she sends people to go do that there's a dog that he sends people to try or tries to send people to go out and walk so we kind of get get to know them uh, through through that interaction in, in the first scene there. Next scene is a scene with uh, Pops and Lulu. Pops uh, is on the roof with Lulu. They're smoking weed together, and um, uh, she lets him know that she's pregnant, and uh, he, he kind of uh, asks her some questions, wants to know if it's Junior's uh, baby or not, which kind of insults her, And he, but he, he kind of uh, rallies and says, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of you. Your family will figure this out. Of course, Junior's going to want to keep it, and Lulu's like, I don't know if he's going to want to keep it or not, so some tension is building around that. Scene three is a dinner with uh, Pops's old partner, uh, uh, O'Connor. Uh, Detective O'Connor is what she's called in the script. Her first name is Audrey, Audrey O'Connor, and her fiancé, Lieutenant Caro. Now, they're over to uh, just kind of, it seems like, catch up after a long time. The, at the start of the dinner, Junior and Lulu are there. Um and uh, and 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 they they're they're there for a little bit. Eventually, Junior leaves. Pops is making him go to Baltimore for a trip. He leaves, and they're kind of left just the three of them: Pops, uh, Detective O'Connor, and Lieutenant Carrow. And uh, becomes clear an ulterior motive was uh, 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 in intended from the two, uh, at least from Lieutenant Carrow, who's there to kind of talk Pops into settling this court case that he's been in for a long time. Um, Pops is a uh, an African American man. He has uh, been a part of the police force for a long time, and 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 at the end of his tenure, there was this event where he was shot six times, I think the script says, by a white police officer who called him a racial slur while he was off duty. Shot him six times. He's been trying to get justice for that incident over the last eight years, and and uh, will not take a settlement. He wants there to be a payout, a significant payout, and some justice against this cop. Um, through the course of the evening, it becomes clear that there's a lot of uh, other details about the story, at least that Caro is bringing up about where where uh, Pops was that night, how drunk he was that night, what all was said between the two. Regardless, though, uh, Pops is not not flinching in this in this conversation. He's 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 sticking sticking to his guns, and he wants to kind of pursue this court case. Doesn't want to come off it, even though it would be beneficial to especially Lieutenant Caro to have it settled. Caro is a little bit of a ladder climber. He's trying to get Pops to relinquish this court case so he can get a promotion. 
and uh, that would make things easier for uh, Lieutenant O'Connor, or I'm sorry, Detective O'Connor as well, who uh, is embroiled in the whole mess in the de- police department. Things end pretty uh, explosively. Everyone uh, gets in a pretty uh, aggressive fight with each other, and uh, Pops kind of uh, kicks them out, sits back down. He's kind of uh, very tired. Looks like he's having a bit of a hard time. And then Oswaldo comes home. Um, Notably, Junior and Lulu have a short scene where Junior is supposed to go off and take some time alone, but instead he brings Lulu with him to Baltimore. So they're kind of out of the house for this next scene, whereas Waldo shows up and he's very drunk. Previous previous scene, he says he's been off the wagon, um, uh, or sorry, on the wagon for 90 days. He's been sober for 90 days, trying to straighten his life out. He comes home completely drunk after having met his dad um, and uh, threatens uh, Pops and tries to get him to give him his credit card. Uh, that, that scene kind of escalates in another fight where the two are kind of fighting over this credit card. Then we go to the act break and we're two weeks later. Oswaldo's not in the scene. Pops is there. He's got a bandage over his head. There, there It becomes clear that there was some sort of fight that uh, Oswaldo needed to be t- taken away, arrested, and... Um, and Pops kind of got injured in the fight. However, the per- a, a church lady is over in this in this first scene, and she's kind of being entertained by uh, Pops, and he uh, it becomes clear she's not the normal church lady who usually comes. She's a, a much younger woman. She is uh, Latina, and uh, there, there's some uh, kind of interaction between the two, and it becomes uh, progressively clear that she's there certainly to try to get him to take communion, but possibly there for a little more. Um, and uh, she, uh, she winds up uh, coming on to him. They have uh, sex in in the in the scene that kind of builds to this sort of uh, blending of sacred and profane in uh, a communion ritual around them having sex together, which culminates in uh, Pops having a heart attack and needing to be called into the hospital. The following scene is uh, days later, Pops is on a uh, EKG and an IV in the room. He has a conversation with Junior around their kind of roles. And uh, Junior wants kind of this this sense of uh, forgiveness, maybe, or son. Like, he wants to be a good son to his dad, but there's so much water under the bridge, they kind of end up talking past each other quite a bit. Pops, like, tries to give him some wisdom. And uh, that that's that's most, most of the scene is just this kind of tension between the two of them. Scene three of act two starts, and this is kind of the biggest, uh, second biggest confrontation scene of the play. Um, we have the church lady returning at the top of the script. Uh, Junior says she has to go away because of what she did to his dad, gave him a heart attack. Um, the Let's see, uh, Detective O'Connor comes back with Lieutenant Caro, and they give one more pitch to try to get uh, Pops to sign off on this deal. Uh, notably, at this point, because of all the goings-on at his apartment, he's been threatened to be evicted. Um, he's not in good standing anymore, so the money is sort of off the table in terms of the settlement. However, he gets a lot of other benefits and uh, like a $15,000 slush fund sort of account. Uh, that's not enough for Pops. Pops like uh, kind of puts the brass tacks to him, asks for Detective O'Connor's engagement ring um, and uh, d- d- uh, Lieutenant Caro's bow tie in exchange for his signature, as well as this kind of $15,000 and the various benefits that are being offered him. Um, and we leave that scene not really knowing uh, whether that worked or not. The last scene is uh, kind of a couple days later, weeks later, um, 
and uh, let's see, Junior, Oswaldo, and Lulu are all in the apartment without Pops. They're wondering where he is. And uh, we flash back to a couple weeks ago when Pops left. And uh, he has this scene with the church lady where he gives her Detective O'Connor's ring. She confesses that she was never really from the church. She's never really been like a deacon or someone who's there to visit him, but in fact, just wanted to kind of flip him and kind of turn the place for, for something to steal. And he's like, that's fine. I'm still giving you this ring. You saved me. You gave me something else to live for. Moving on. And uh, that's kind of that's that that's the broad action of the play from top to bottom, at least. Yeah, boy, a lot happens in this yeah. play. One of the things that is sort of striking about it is the threads of subplot. I mean, there is this really well flushed out longer thread of of what Pops is facing at this odd moment in his life, this settling the lawsuit with the city question, this question of, of how his life's going to move forward, who he, who's he going to be now that his wife Dolores has passed, which is a fairly recent thing within this past year. And that plot really from beginning to end is the plot of the play really well developed some really strikingly good writing at moments in that plot but at other there are all these other spider webs of things going on around it like why is pop so insistent that junior goes to baltimore to take a trip and we it's the baltimore thing never really comes up again after it happens it we move on to this post heart attack situation with pops um the the, the Lulu being pregnant but not really being pregnant thing comes and goes throughout the play. This uh, this sort of odd thing about wanting to get rid of the dog and then deciding to keep the dog is another sort of web. And, the, and they all spiderweb crinkle off of Pops's plot, but there's just so much going on. As Waldo going to meet his father and coming home drunk because of that and getting in a fight. I mean, there is just so much in this play that is around and outside of a fairly complicated, well fleshed out center plot. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 there's so much richness in each of these little character arcs <laughs> that 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 and so many questions that it generates as well. There's the kind of connection to Detective O'Connor. She was his partner for years. Prior to the argument, there's like, you know, half a scene of them just kind of recounting their stories from being on the force together. Um and so so you have all of these different uh, allegiances. Maybe maybe that's a good way to think about it. There's all these allegiances at play um to Pops. Pops is kind of the centerpiece. He, uh, he, he, uh, he's borderline agoraphobic, right? He doesn't go out anywhere. And yet so many people come to him um, and kind of have these scenes with him and, and with him at the center of it and kind of him as the main kingpin of many of these relationships. Yeah, let's I think let's start at the end, Jackson, and talk about the way that these final two scenes work together, because to me, it's one of the more kind of bizarre, puzzling in, a, in an interesting way, ways to end the play. So it, the the, con, the final confrontation with Detective uh, O'Connor and Lieutenant Caro happens. Pop says, you know, give me the ring and the tie and the contract and I'll sign. Otherwise, GTFO. And that's sort of <laughs> how the scene ends. And then we go into this scene that is six months later with Junior and Lulu and Oswaldo all sitting at the table together. And it's a very short scene. We basically learned that uh, Oswaldo has moved back into the apartment based on Junior's allowing him to do that. Lulu is definitely not pregnant. And we learned that Pops basically disappeared one day 
went up to the roof with a suitcase, he says, and then never came back, basically. And now that's gone by six months. So that's a, I mean, to me, that scene is like, oh, okay, so the, he's been gone. I understand now what has happened in this play. But then immediately following that scene, we get what is the last scene in the play, which takes us back in time to just after the confrontation, well, two weeks after the confrontation that uh, between the pops and the detective and the lieutenant, which kind of ends that that arc of the play. So we go, we get that confrontation, and then we go forwards in time six months to Junior's Waldo and Lulu in the apartment. Pops has disappeared. Then we go back in time to two weeks after the major confrontation, and we get the exchange between Pops and the new church lady where she reveals she was just trying to con him. He gives her her money anyway and says he's basically going to go travel with his dog. And I, that is a such a fascinating like sequence of scenes and timing. I mean, for a play which is does not play with time that much. I mean, it's straightforward chronological pretty well up until that moment to blast forward and then backwards like that, a little bit of sort of uh, 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 narrative whiplash. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those the the kind of bouncing back and forth between the scenes kind of makes you engage differently with them. And I think that who is in those scenes and and why we are in that order can give you some clues into what this play is about. Um, for, why are we ending the scene with? I mean, there, there's a there's a compelling argument for Junior and Lulu in the scene, but why is Oswaldo there? Oswaldo uh, has been missing for all of Act Two. He ended his his tenure on on stage assaulting Pops. Why has Oswaldo showed up? Um, and and I think I think I, I wonder if this isn't speaking to one of the big themes around. Certainly, certainly there's the the grief theme of Pops losing his wife and Pops losing his job in the manner that he did. Um, but but I think there's also this this really core theme about pops takes care of family, um, and and what that means uh, for him, even even family that he is annoyed with, even family that he doesn't like all that much. Um, he 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 uh, pushes to be sure that as many people as possible within his family are taken care of. And, and that's kind of the scene that we get at the end. We have the three people in the room who are considered his family. Detective O'Connor and, well, Detective O'Connor may have started the play in that category, but she has moved out of it by the end of the play and becomes the one which he takes something from in order to take care of his family. And then you, and gives it to someone who was there only to take something from him, but yet gave him something in the church lady, um, kind of gave him back some degree of his life. Um, so, so you have, uh, I think that's somewhat at play in these scenes and, and who is there at least in the order that we see them is, is this theme of who he takes, who pops takes care of with what he has left to give. Yeah. It, it strikes me that jumping ahead six months to see Junior and Oswaldo and Lulu talk about basically Pop's disappearance and, and the fact that he's never come back and never called gives us the context by which we can more fully understand the exchange that then we come back in time to the present moment. I don't know, it gets a little fluid at the end. Though, yeah, yeah. We come back in time to see in his exchange with uh, the church lady. And maybe what Stephen Adley Gerges is trying to do is to tell us when Pop says he's going to go travel, he's going to become a wanderer like his father was, uh, he, he ain't joking. Right. right. <laughs> it's not like he's just going down to the Holiday Inn down the block and then coming back a week later. He vanishes 
out of his yeah. family's life. He leaves enough money to take care of them in the apartment. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's not super clear to me if he lets his Waldo back in or if Junior does, but I actually agree a lot with you, Jackson, that I don't think he would have had a problem with that because despite as Waldo attacking him, as Waldo is, is sort of in the fold of his family. And I, that might be the other reason maybe why all of the characters call him dad, right? I mean, it, he gets some ribbing from his former partner about how everybody calls him dad, but that right. tells us something about who he is, right? These are people who look to him in that role in their lives, who don't have necessarily a reason to, and in fact, he's puzzled by it, why they call him dad, but that's the, that is the kind of person he is, right? He's stepped in, and I, I think they speak that to him affectionately. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I do like too that we kind of have the firm. I, I like I like what you're talking about about how you have the firm uh, sense that Pop is gone from six 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 months out. Because imagine if we ended the scene with this like rooftop moment, um, where where he's just on the roof with with the church lady giving her the the ring, and then like he's on the roof, well dressed with this dog that we know he hates. And the question, at least in my mind, even in reading it this time, was like, wait a minute, did Pop, like, jump off the roof? Is that what we're learning from Junior saying he went up to the roof and never, never came back? Um, like, that's an interesting, that, that's an interesting open door in the story. Um, but but by the, the kind of conclusion that you know for sure that six months out, these people are still there and still wondering where he is, um, kind of closes that at least for me it closed the door on that just a little bit that there's there's continuation of this story beyond the roof moment and uh and and it stands to reason that pops is still out there wandering around but maybe that that could just be my optimism too i don't know (laughs) i don't think it is your optimism i i I think that if if the play ended instead with the major confrontation where Pops totally outplays the detective and the lieutenant, huge victory, great, that confrontation, the next scene is him and the church lady on the roof, and he says, I've left enough money to take care of my son. I'm going to go start wandering. I mean, people like you and I, right, who get on to have conversations would be like, well, he <laughs> says he's going to go wandering, but he's never left his apartment in how many, in like eight years since he's been shot. I mean, I don't know that we have any reason to believe he's really going to stick with it. I mean, who knows? Yeah. It'd be great if he did. But but Steve Nadal Girgis says, look, no, this happens, right? I'm going to give you a scene from way in the future so that as you hear him and the church lady exchange their plans for what the how their lives are going to change as a result of the events of the play, you know that Pops is real. He's on. I mean, the, he his life has been changed. There is no speculation. He gone. He gone. Right. Yeah. Yep. He's off somewhere in the sunset and has and has provided for for his family and has provided as much as he can, um, given given where he start, you know, where he has spiraled from, which is an interesting kind of point to to make is he kind of starts the play in this um, really hard, hard held stance um, in terms of this court case that he um, is in. And yet throughout the play, he slowly begins to realize that this court case can be a tactic to take care of his family well. And then it becomes the question of, is he sticking to his um, moral code, his uh, uh, upright, his integrity, um, or can he tr- try to use this in some way to to bring about a better future or a better sense of care for um, his family? It's 
notable that 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 uh, switching tactic only comes after the heart attack, though, um, and and the kind of the the new freedom that he has found as a result of his encounter with the church lady. Right, and and, and this the scene with the church lady where she, I mean, basically what she does is give him back the the ability to have sex. At least that's one of the things. There's a a really heart wrenching. Um, let me let me start this little section by saying this. If you're a playwright or a director or an actor, I don't know as much about design and tech as those three roles, but probably for anybody, but especially playwrights, directors, and actors, and you want to see master craft writing where people pursue goals, use different tactics to try to win over other people. There are not two better scenes in the entire dramatic literature canon than these two scenes in this play. I mean, there's other there's other scenes, of course, that are as good, but it doesn't get better than this. I mean, right. the two scenes with Pops versus the, the, the lieutenant, basically, those that's protagonist-antagonist, and then Detective O'Connor kind of swings and, and alters things around for both of them throughout the scenes. It does not get better written than this. And so, I mean, they are just so good. It's hard to rave enough about how well-written those scenes are. And so in this first encounter with Detective O'Connor and Lieutenant Caro and Pops, they've basically, they've gone through their logic, they've gone through their pleading, they've gone through the, I want you to be there to walk me down the aisle, Pops, you're going to lose your apartment, Pops, all this stuff. And finally, it started to become heated, and they're going to leave in this in this heated place. And Pops basically says to Lieutenant Caro, look, you two are in a relationship, you're about to get married, you're probably going to go home and sleep together, right? I mean, it's a great, it's part of the relationship, right? It's, it's how you express your love to each other, right? You're intimate with each other, right? I was not able to do that for the last eight years of the marriage with my wife after I was shot. That has been taken from me by this officer who shot me at the bar. And so you, you I mean, a heart-wrenching part of the argument, painful story to hear him say, and in the incredibly clever Stephen Adley Gerges way, it sets up the change in Pops that is going to be received, although it doesn't, it's not like it's, it doesn't have to set that up. It's powerful as it stands in the argument. But Stephen Adley Gerges is clever enough that things do multiple things at the same time, right? right? So it also <laughs> sets up this incredible plot shift for him. And I think you have to believe that the encounter with the church lady and the heart attack is the major thing which changes his mind about the lawsuit, don't you? Because other than that, I don't really know why he changes his mind about the lawsuit. Right, right. There's there's this fulcrum moment where um in, in the play in that scene it's right at the top of scene t- of act 2 and and all of the kind of previous build up um has prepared us for the church lady to be there, but it's notable that this that she represents a, a distinct difference in in what has happened before. There's kind of this this sense where Pops kind of knows what's going to happen most of the time or at least pretends that he does. And yet this kind of chaos element of the church lady being someone new throws him off base a little bit. She comes in and she kind of has these these kind of uh, claims that she can see parts about him, that she has this kind of either hoodoo or voodoo uh, uh, necklace that she's wearing that allows her to see parts of him and continues to kind of say this line over and over about freedom, that we are all free or we are we always have freedom or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's always we are free is the line that yeah. she repeats over and over, which has a sort of religious bent. Again, she's sort of pretending to be this woman from the church who's come to offer him communion. 
Um, and so the, the line has that sort of religious element, freedom in Christ, freedom from your sin, freedom in the, in the Eucharist. Um, but it also sort of has this different dimension for Pop about the freedom, you know, that she starts to tell him about the freedom of his choices, the freedom from his pain and suffering and all of this. Yeah, which causes him to reflect in subsequent scenes about how free he has been in his life, whether his relationship to his father has defined his life or not. His father was this person who he'd never met, who uh, he mentions like was a sparring partner for a famous boxer, was a wanderer who wandered all over the place. And he says that what if my life has been just an aggressive reaction to the fact that he was never around? I got a job. I got an apartment. I dug in. I have this kind of really sustainable life. And and now I'm discovering <laughs> what if it's what if my life has been defined by that reaction? What if I there's another way for me to be free? Um, and so with that, that sort of pull to always we are free. Um, he looks he I, I think I think he looks at the at the different things that are available to him to try to make that freedom happen. And the, the main tactic that he has that he knows someone wants something from him is Lieutenant Caro who uh, just some like, like needs this. It becomes apparent quickly uh, throughout di the different scenes. It's not just um, that, that he uh, wants this or kind of is put out by the fact that he's for some reason, hanging on to this old grudge. Lieutenant Carroll needs this to the point that <laughs> that Pops gets him and Detective O'Connor to give up a ring um, and give him $15,000 that kind of materializes partway through the uh, the it, argument. It, it <laughs> seems like the 15000 cash is like... Uh something that Lieutenant Carroll has been authorized by the city to include in the negotiations, which yep. maybe seems like a small point, but what it indicates, I think, is that he truly has been sent there to negotiate this deal, right? In their first exchange, it seems more like he's sort of mentioned to some higher-ups, you know, my fiancé used to be his partner. I bet I could solve this problem for you as a sort of like, ah, you know, maybe you give me a, a raise. I look good in your eyes. I go up the food chain. But when they come back and he seems to have the authority to authorize certain parts of the negotiation, including potentially up to 15000 cash, now it looks like this is his job, which yeah. helps you, I think, to understand the level to which they're desperate for this to go well. I, I have to confess, though, I'm still not totally sure what their investment is to the level of being willing to give up a $30,000 ring. I right. mean, it feels like it's, I, I mean, city politics, I guess, are crazy. But does, <laughs> do, do his bosses, like, really expect his wife to give up her $30,000 engagement ring in order for um, him to secure this deal? I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, that's another interesting little tendril of this story, right? Because for the most part, Detective O'Connor is in that scene where, where Pops finally makes the ask to give me the ring and also your bow tie jerk. Um, and and uh, and kind of pushes them in that direction. She is thoroughly shocked by this, um, and ends the scene not not like saying that she wants to do it. Um, in fact, at the the kind of tail end of the scene, Pops goes off, kind of saying, "Make your choices well. Think about this a lot." And a kind of interesting tendril is that at least I like to hold for that scene is Pops is kind of showing Detective O'Connor the lengths to which Lieutenant Caro is willing to go to get this done for himself. 
<laughs> um, and so we, we don't really get to see what that sort of what the fallout of this interaction is. We just know that the ring is in fact given to Pops at the end of it. So it, and maybe it's just knowing because I already know the end of the play, given the number of times I read it. But it, there is a moment towards the end of the the exchange. Pops is basically leaving the room, like you say, he's going to go to the bathroom, and he's basically said, "Look, I'm going to the bathroom. Decide by the time I get back, this is the deal." And he says, um, uh, uh, "Detective O'Connor says uh, this isn't right." Basically, that's her her last couple of lines in that scene is, "This isn't right," or some some alteration around that idea. And Pops says, "What exactly isn't right, Audrey? And what a world it would be if what was right was enough." First of all, what a line. Yeah. But he goes on to say. Besides, nothing's been decided here. And Lieutenant Caro says, oh, you know, GD, well, it has. So I, and again, it might just be me anticipating because I know the end of the play, but it does seem like even at that moment, Lieutenant Caro says, you know, I have to say yes to this. Right. Somehow Pops understands the degree to which Lieutenant Caro has been pressured to secure Pops' signature. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch Pops drag that out of him. Oh my <laughs> gosh, it's <laughs> so well written. <laughs> yeah, there's so many little beats. Like eventually he pulls, uh, uh, Lieutenant Carroll tells this like, you know, identify with me story in their first argument where he talks about his dad being a cop and that he eventually killed himself because he couldn't handle being, or because of what the job did to him. Um, and in the second argument, Pops is like, you don't really have a dad who's in the cop force, <laughs> do you? And he's like, no, of course not. My dad's like an accountant somewhere. Um, and just the degree to which he takes away the facade that is Caro and and I think possibly shows <laughs> um, shows O'Connor the level to which Caro is willing to go for for this job um, is is another like little nod maybe maybe O'Connor is is outside of his family at the end of it but they have this shared history so even even in this really contentious way he's still looking out for her at least a little bit. Yeah, why do you think he takes the ring, Jackson? I don't. I mean, this is a it, uh, this is a fascinating question, right? When you're the director and the actor, and to to really hash this out, I personally, I would probably do that in a private rehearsal where the actors playing O'Connor and Carol are not around because they don't know why. So that's just my personal maybe what I would do. But the question I think has to be asked, right? What what it, what really is Pops trying to do here? They ask him why, and he says another fantastic written line which is basically because it pleases me to take it from you yeah oh my <laughs> gosh yeah what a line <laughs> now I, I don't know I mean, that maybe a hundred percent of it that might be 12 percent of it i don't know but it, it's an interesting question right he he goes into this negotiation seeming to me, I think he might have signed no matter what. If he believes he's going to die or he knows his life is about to change and he's going to be a wanderer, right, as a result of this church lady heart attack thing, he knows his life is about to change somehow. And so signing the agreement is his way to take care of the family. So then this negotiation over humiliating them, showing their, showing his power ultimately, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about cuz certainly so certainly the uh, as, like having money to give to people who he cares about is an important theme. And at the start of the scene we we find out pretty quickly that money isn't on the table anymore in the non-disclosure agreement. 
um, other than this kind of odd discretionary fund that is brought in partway through. So he knows he has $15,000. He's also thinking toward, I think he's also thinking of like the church lady in association with, with uh, what she did for him, at least, at least initially. But man, he doesn't <laughs> care about the ring. I mean, he gives it to the church lady at the end and she says, look, I was here to steal money from you. There aren't any orphans that I care for. There aren't any lepers. Uh, I've just made it all up. And the final line of the play is like, there are orphans somewhere. Right. And it's on, not on like the, the the use of the money that you would get from selling the ring is some crucial. I mean, the money that is there to take care of Junior is the rent-free apartment for so long, keeping the rent stabilized, the cash money. I would assume he uses the $15,000 cash money to fund his traveling. So I think it's really holding on to the apartment that is like the taking care of Junior and these other uh, periphery members of his family. Yeah. So so then you're kind of left with what is it about taking the ring from O'Connor and uh, and uh, Caro that 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 is that is that that pleases him. <laughs> um, and I, and I, pleases me to take yeah. it from you. Oh, yep. oh, yep. To write a line like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it has to do with. I mean, these two scenes carry a lot of focus in this play, and 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 uh, bear a lot of the weight. And as much, uh, e- even though there's so much weight given to who Pops is taking care of, these scenes contain a lot of the structure of yeah, the, the play. These scenes are the play yeah. to me. I mean, Pops' relationship with Lulu and his Waldo and junior and the scene with the church lady probably is also i would include that and maybe like if i had to boil this play down to three scenes it'd be the the detective scenes and the church lady scene and and again all that other stuff is incredible well it's all great the relationships what it comments about race and family and power they're all good not to set aside any of it but the the boil down core three scenes of the play are the two arguments about the the the, the lawsuit and the church lady scene at least in my opinion. And in those scenes, we see a really profound betrayal of Pops happen. These are the two mm, people. Uh, in, yes. in I think in Connor, we see the person that he is closest to, was closest to, and probably remains closest to within the police yes. force, his partner, um, show up and kind of jump him when they're over for dinner with this, you gotta, you gotta let go of this case after eight years. Um, and, and then her, her fiance, who's kind of showing up and trying to kind of get in his good graces for a little while, uses just everything to try to sell him on this. He's, you know, he starts with this kind of guilt around O'Connor wants you to walk her down the aisle. Then he digs into the specifics of, of, of the case and sh- tries to like drag his name through the mud. O'Connor helps him. There's this one line, especially towards where it gets really heated in the first conversation. O'Connor says something something to the effect of, well, whose fault is this really? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Th- th- that's it, right? Th- that's the betrayal, I think. Yeah. Because Junior also says you should give up this lawsuit. I mean, and that's the like it's the first time we hear about the lawsuit is Junior saying you're paying these lawyers, they're stealing money from you because they're not going to be able to do anything. You got to settle this lawsuit. Interestingly, Junior's wrong about that, which I think is a part of, a moment of the play that is that goes unnoticed that we learn late in the play. The lawyers aren't even cashing his checks, which I think Pops knows. He keeps track of his money so carefully. So uh, I, Junior was wrong about that from the beginning. But all that to say, Junior also says you should sign this lawsuit, and apparently we. 
we learn sort of third hand that uh, uh, Pop's uh, uh, departed wife Dolores said that to him too, right? So it's not it's not that encouraging him to settle the lawsuit is a betrayal. The betrayal is when Detective O'Connor says it might have been your fault. Yeah, it might have been your fault for being at that bar, for being drunk at 6 a.m., all this stuff. Yeah. And I think that that is probably part of why those scenes matter so much. This this profound betrayal of Pops by someone he cares a lot for, someone who's in his family. Um, And then then you see the two different ways that he treats um, family, family who uh, he continues to be in relationship with, who don't betray him necessarily, even though Oswaldo arguably betrays him. uh, And yet there's a a compassionate response in some way. But you see it's a. he, I, I do. I think he is compassionate towards Oswaldo. He, yeah. Again, we don't necessarily see him as invite Oswaldo back into the apartment, but I really, in my heart, believe he would have been okay with that. I think Pop sees Oswaldo as a, as an addict, as a as a victim of of his father, his biological father, and the system, and is interested in caring for him. Mm-hmm. But but that is contrasted with the way he interacts with O'Connor and. And uh, Lieutenant Caro, uh, and and you, I think that that like that bit of cruelty, I guess, at the end, that vindicated cruelty, if 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 that if that is a thing, um, is representative of that betrayal that O'Connor has given him as a result of these scenes and this kind of full court press that they put on him, even in times of weakness, to try to kind of drag him through and out of his integrity stance into settling for this. Yeah, and there's man, uh, uh, there's so many great lines in this play. But in that in that con- final confrontation where he wins about the ring, there's that line: "You can have a victory, or you can have the ring, but you can't have both." And I yeah. just love that peak. I love the way that line is written because that's how a lot of theater artists talk about acting, right? Is is in terms of victories. I mean, could it be a more clear statement? You can have a victory, or you can have the ring, but you can't have both. I mean, it's such good writing, it just in the English sense, in the power sense, but also from the character standpoint. For Pops, who's, I mean, he, he knows he can't beat City Hall, right? Carol says that to him in their first encounter. You're not going to win over City Hall. They're going to take your apartment. They're going to arrest your son. They're not going to give you a cent. I think he calls it, the, I'm going to swear here, I apologize, it's in the play, but the fuck it factor, right? That like, There's going to come a point where the city's just going to decide it's not worth it to do this. Let's just destroy him instead. And I, I Pops is so intelligent. He knows it's coming, right? I can't beat them, but I can have all the power right now yeah. against these two. I'm going to say you can have victory or you can have the ring, but you can't have both. Yep. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant uh, kind of structural work, brilliant character work, brilliant prop work. Like this ring oh, is a $30,000 yes. ring that she's wearing and it's the thing that that is being negotiated over. So so yeah, it's just it's just full of good negotiation, good tension and good stakes. Um and 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 intense knowledge by a character of the fact that they control the stakes for the interaction. Yes. Uh, I want to talk about Jackson as, as our time sort of wanes down. The incredible image, as we're thinking about images and props, of the wheelchair. The play opens with Pops sitting in the wheelchair, which the stage directions say, and then a character later confirms uh, in the dialogue, belonged to Pops' 
uh, departed wife, Dolores. Apparently she was sick for the last long while of his life. Pops was taking care of her. Again, she's passed very recently. He's now a widower. So the play opens with him and his Waldo sitting at breakfast together. Waldo in a kitchen chair pops in the wheelchair of his departed wife. And then when we come all the way around, this is a very round play in so many ways, we come around to that scene from six months later, and it's Junior sitting in the wheelchair with Oswaldo in that moment. And so this this hanging image of not an empty wheelchair, but a wheelchair filled with someone who doesn't necessarily need it, yeah, yeah. It's I. I wonder. It's not called for in the stage directions or anything. But I wonder at scenes where Pop stands up from the chair, because um, he can. Um, he just yeah, likes right? the chair. He can walk. <laughs> yeah, he just likes the chair. Um, and so that that kind of compelling image. Um, both both provides the opportunity for when when you when you break the rule um, that that he's in the chair all the time, um, but also gives you this heavily weighted prop, especially once you find out what it is. It is in in some ways the spirit of Dolores or the presence of Dolores, kind of holding sway over Pops throughout the play. Um, and and there's 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 frequent points where it comes up. Um, where Dolores comes up and he says she'd be proud of you or she would not be proud of you or something like that. Um, yeah, and- there's a great, there's a lovely line where uh, Pops has just told his old partner and the lieutenant that um, Junior's girlfriend Lulu is pregnant, right, which we learn in the beginning of the play, although I think we learn it was never true. Yeah. Is that what you think we learn? Or, or it's, it it's one interpretation. An abortion? Yeah. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, we learn, he tells him about it. And they're, oh, you're going to be a grandpa. Dolores would be back in that room painting it, you know, pink, blue, and putting up a crib already, wouldn't she? Lovely, touching little moment. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I think that's some of the service of that wheelchair is to offer that perspective, that knowledge that though though he uh, he can walk, um, he he chooses to kind of rest in in some way in her influence still, and and he's not willing to let go of it, not willing to move on from it until the end. Like most of Act Two, he's not in the wheelchair. Um, the, Although he's in a hospital bed, it's so. true. It's true. It's not that, yeah, that's, that's very. But then, what do you do with the wheelchair? Is the wheelchair in the room uh, yeah. still? Like all, know. he kind of shuffles to the bathroom in the one scene. He's not using the the wheelchair for that. So yeah, I think I think there's lots of opportunity to use it as a pretty weighty prop that he then must. I mean, by by virtue of the stage directions, must overcome um, to get on the roof at the end of the play. <laughs> so choosing how that all happens is an interesting an interesting way to use a prop. And speaking of. Dolores and her her presence as she runs throughout the play as this departed character. Did you notice that as he's having the heart attack, so uh, the church lady has been there, she's done all this stuff to try to get his money, um, while all the while trying to maintain that she's taking care of these orphans and all this stuff. Eventually she, like, baptism has communion and a part of a sort of ritualistic and she yeah. starts to they start to have sex on stage uh, all very modest in terms as much as stage sex could be <laughs> i mean sure but she <laughs> but it is him it's in happening whiskey. in front of him <laughs> yeah. so it's uncomfortable it's kind of uncomfortable but 
It's a dark comedy. It's also funny. It's uncomfortable funny. All that to say, he starts to have a heart attack because he's finally having sex for the first time in eight years. Is his you know things have been broken as a result of the shooting, right? So it's he's like, oh, this is medically impossible. Now it's happening. Oh, it's exciting. It's the best day of my life. You think he says at one point? But the other thing that he says is, I'm just gonna read it. Uh, serious man, very serious. Call the ambulance. Call Junior. Call Dolores. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's back. I mean, not really, but in the moment, you ha- he we he we reveal for that for him, she is still there. Yeah. Call Re- Dolores. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder rather than she's back, but she never left him. Um, that she's she's kind of still attached to him in some way. That 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 he kind of calls out to her in this moment. Yeah, which is again, there, there's just so many things happening in this play because I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would describe this play as like about a guy struggling to get over the death of his wife. I mean, it, it doesn't feel so present. He's not like always. Well, Dolores said I should live, but Dolores said I should never leave, so I never leave. Right? That doesn't seem to be the case, and yet it is part of the given circumstances that he is a widow, a recent widower, that this has impacted him. Of course, it has. Uh, he, I think the the lady says you're angry about the death of your wife, and he says, "Of course, I'm angry about the death of my wife." But I do think in that heart attack scene, call Dolores, and then a line later, he's I think he's like speaking to Dolores. Do you hear that, Dolores? I don't know if he's hallucinating her or if he's sort of speaking into her in heaven, um, or or whatever it is. Right? That that it is revealed that this this holding on to staying put is, and that's, that's, I don't know, that's a weird sentence, but I'm going to say it again. Holding on to staying put is at least in some part due to this incredible loss and change in his life. Yeah, I think it's interesting. In one of the interviews I I watched of Stephen McKinley Henderson, who played Pops in those original productions, he said uh, in in the first one, that was where he found a lot of his motivation was in this... um, in this journey of of grief over his wife and the kind of what and that that was his driving force this 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 sense of the loss of Dolores and then he said in the second version he played more with taking care of Junior and being sure Junior is on his feet at the end of the play was more the motivation that he played with so it's it's there's so I, I all that to say I agree there's just so much going on in this play so many motivations to kind of pick apart and suss out that all of these characters are going through. It's, it's a masterwork of, of subtext, backstory, character, and, and diplomacy. <laughs> It is a, ma- I mean, it, it's great that it won the Pulitzer Prize for drama because it is as deserving of it as I think it could be. Though some of the scenes are just so well written that they take your breath away. Yeah. And then the additional layer of the complicated familial identities, the incredible, pl- I mean, we didn't talk very much in this conversation. Of course, we're two white guys, so there it goes. But about the racial, political, complex ideas that are put forward in the play by, by Stephen I mean, there's just there's so many layers that are all layered on top of such smart writing. I mean, yeah. I cannot say it enough. Stephen Adelgirgis is has always been an incredibly smart writer. Go back and read The Motherfucker with the Hat, Jesus Hop the A-Train. I mean, those plays are the the dialogue writing is really good. The subtext writing, I mean, just the two people pushing against each other, trying to have a victory. It is so stinking good. And to use that as a bedrock, just the Stephen Adelgirgis, I'm such a smart guy writer bedrock, then to layer on political familial, social, economic ideas on top 
top of it. And you end up with a play that really, really deserves the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, full full of witty and kind of dark co- comedy as well as just normal comedy throughout. There's a brilliant takedown of Rudy Giuliani in there. Yeah, um, the pigeon, the yeah. pigeon. <laughs> there's so many different facets of this play we could continue to talk about. Alas, we are out of time, but fortunately we don't have to stop talking about it. We'd love to continue talking with all of you out there in podcast land. If you wanted to find someone to talk about this play with, if you've been in it, seen it, read it, just want to talk to someone about it, we can be those people. Or the NoScript community can be those people. You can find us yeah, on yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at the username, at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Between Riverside and Crazy with you. Welcome to season eight, everybody. You know it's going to be a good one with it starts when it starts with such a stinking good play <laughs> as between Riverside and Crazy. Across this next season, don't forget about our other seven seasons that you can point people to if you are having a conversation about a play. Maybe we've had a conversation about a play. You can point your friends, family to our podcast. Anybody you know that likes scripts, drama, uh, just theater in general, uh, stories, anything like that. Point them our way. See if they would enjoy being part of the NoScript community. They can find us on Podbean, where we're hosted. Also, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and just straight up on Facebook. Like our page. You'll be able to see a link every Monday when the new episode comes out. We shoot a link up there so it's easy to find for folks. They can catch us right there. we got an exciting season ahead of us. Yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to next week when we'll be talking about another play. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. <laughs>